0: media camp guys with Sergey Ross. We're here again with a great guest, Nigel Payne, who was former head of training and development at BBC. He built one of the most successful learning and development operations in the UK. He's got an extensive experience in leadership and consultancy. He also wrote three books like Learning Challenge, Building Leadership Development Programs that work and workplace learning and now he runs his own consultancy which focuses on leadership creativity innovation and e-learning and actually has been doing it for a long time Nigel, it's so nice to have you thank you for coming
1: sergey it's good to talk to you good to see you finally it's great to see your face it took a while
0: it took a while for us to do that but no it's it's it's, it's amazing uh I'm, I'm gonna ask this Question, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but I feel like it's, it's a good fit here. How did you get started? What got you into the world of journalism presenting back in a long time ago? Back
1: in the, it, was a, it was a long time ago. Um, the answer to that is serendipity. I didn't, I didn't sit there at the age of 12 and say, I have a vision for my life. Uh, and also stage by stage, step by step. Um, I, I got into, very early on, I got into computer-based stuff. So I, I, I thought that computers, personal computers were gonna have a massive impact on the world. And I was right. So I was kind of early into that. And therefore, as they became media devices, I was very early into, uh, uh, this is gonna sound embarrassing. Uh, when Mac OS 7 came out, and I don't even know yeah. when it was, that was the very first operating system where you could run video, postage stamp video. And, and I, I used to sp- spend my time standing up in front of people saying, this is going to be huge. One day we're going to have full screen, full motion, and people just laughed and said, <laughs> right. what that horrible little postage stamp is going to take over the world? You are joking. And it took a bit longer than I thought. You know, I thought maybe in two years' time, but it of took course. maybe eight or ten years, but we got there. We got there. So I, I was always very... Um, content and happy working with technology and media and that got me eventually by a circuitous route into the BBC mm. where I was in a massive media organization and uh, I really loved that time and w- what we I had to do the big big job was digitization. So mm-hmm. BBC was still pretty much analog and then patchy analog digital oh, cool. and yeah, old school, I, and I, everyone realised, it wasn't just me, that we had to digitise the entire operation very, very quickly. And that was training 15,000 journalists and another 5,000 production staff to move from analogue to digital. And, and we did it, and the world moved on, and the BBC is still producing good stuff. So that that was the major challenge, and also just getting the, the organization, the learning and development for the organization online. Because, again, it was very traditional. It was face-to-face stuff. And largely, people hated the online world because the most of the learning they'd seen and did was boring and awful. So one of the first things I did was I, I, I scrubbed every single one of our online programs because they were awful. They were just basically click through text because they were cheap. Ch- training then- programs?
0: Uh, Nidal change yeah, programs? yeah.
1: Yeah, training programs, click-through text, in a media organization. Is that sensible? No, it's not. It's crazy. And what we had to do was rebuild the internal network to be able to transmit video internally. And then we started to produce material for externals, because I thought one of the BBC's missions is to extend its expertise out into the world. So we produced um, simple materials on recce on editing, on shooting simple programs. Because at mm-hmm. that time, when as the DVI uh, cameras were coming out, people could afford to have pretty high quality video, but they didn't know what to do nice. with it. And they mostly make a mess of it. So we, we helped uh, and um, it, it sort of snowballed. And now, the whole world is oh, yeah. making, and, making their own materials. But and and this, was, time, this, was,
0: this was 2005, right? 2005, 2006. Yeah. So super yeah. early.
1: Yeah. Super early. Yeah. Super early. And one of the things we did in the organization, again, strange because it was the BBC. We didn't give people. We had big cameras. You know, the old BBC, which cost a fortune. We bought, right. uh, I think, 50 DVI cameras. And we handed them to people in the organization and say, tell us your stories. And we captured a huge amount of insight, knowledge, expertise Mm -hmm. that would would not normally have been shared. And we put it on an internal website and we allowed the the wisdom of the crowds, really. So the more things that were accessed, the more times things were accessed, they moved up the list. The, The fewer times they went down the list. So we ended up with a collection of great insights on how to run a a broadcasting organisation about journalism, about making programmes, about editing, all sorts of areas of expertise. But we kind of gave a voice to the the young, the unacknowledged, the the spunky, the creative, you know, the people who in most organisations kind of get overlooked. They just do a great job and no one really notices. But So we wanted to highlight those people. and, And in some ways, that vision that we had in those days is now... Everywhere out there, everybody has a voice, and everyone wants to tell their story. But in the, in those days, it was uh, it was contentious, you know. That, that but people were worried, you know. What, what happens if and people can say anything? What happens if they say the wrong thing or they say something of illegal? Or whatever, you know. And, and we're still there today in a way with, with all of that. But we're we're a little less anxious. Uh, we're more anxious about other things. Right.
0: And yeah, we didn't have a platform like YouTube to actually no uh, put it out. So so the like outsourcing no. in a way was really smart way to. Um, and this was only BBC internal
1: staff, right? Yes, that was for internal stuff. Eventually, things started moving outside, and, and there was a whole creative um, environment for outsiders to to draw on the expertise and, and so on. But no, initially it was to there were twenty six thousand staff when I was there. It's just a bit smaller now. So it was it was trying to join the organization together so that we, people could appreciate the skills and the creativity right across the organization. And not just in, it was very silo: journalism, radio, TV, program making, back of house, technical, uh, HR, finance. You know, they're all in these little silos. And we tried to make people appreciate that, that, that the real energy Across the organisation, so things like we did, we did stuff on project management. No one did anything on project management, but running running a successful TV program required intensely high project management skills. And if we could efficiently manage budgets in a way that that was, that we, we went along with the best. It would save the organization a fortune that they could then spend on more programs. So the message gradually got across. So, you know, project management wasn't dreary and boring. Project management became exciting. And we had a few project management heroes in the organization Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And And we also had ideas trying to show how the best ideas got turned into into action. Because in many, many parts of the organization, ideas were really rated on the basis of the status of the individual on the ideas. So if you were junior in the organization, you right. could be having the most brilliant ideas, no one gave a damn. If you were senior and you had a rubbish idea, going, well, that's fantastic. Or
0: bureaucracy. Because they were senior. At bad, at the yeah,
1: in our bureaucracy. And we tried to kind of show that you had to churn up ideas yeah. from. Right across the organisation, if you wanted to be more creative, and that was the aim to create more, make mm-hmm. make the BBC more creative. That was it. and you spent time the, the and you
0: spent time on uh, training people, training people how to present, how to broadcast. Uh, who who did you spend most time with?
1: Um, we did that when, when I was with the BBC. That was just a standard thing. Anyone who was going to be on radio or on camera mm-hmm. had to be had to be trained. When I left the BBC, what I realised was that there was this incredible unmet demand that most people were really nervous about appearing on camera or speaking uh, recorded audio. And yet we lived in this world of YouTube and LinkedIn where more and more and more video was more and more relevant or more and more media were were more and more relevant. And so I I just kind of slipped into doing that. I didn't do that as a business. I did it as, as a mentoring one-on-one helping people. And I still do it. You know, I've I've done it with chief executives who were terrified of speaking to shareholders and speaking to, you know, the whole organization. Were really scared as soon as there's more than four people in the room through to young, gifted entrepreneurs trying to get their ideas across and making a complete mess of it because they just didn't know how to hold an audience and tell a good story. So it's kind of about storytelling. It's, it's about telling a great story, but having the medium which you use to tell the story as engaging and, uh, and as dramatic as the, as the story itself. So you bring those two together. And I also spent ages, hours and hours of my life helping people write, because I also realised that not everyone is a journalist. Not everyone can just turn a phrase and produce a thousand words or whatever they have to do. And so I try to help people because I've, you know, I've written hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words in my time. And and I think I can help people who are struggling to get stuff down on paper. So it was really based on my experience. I did a lot of front of camera work. You know, I, I did live radio when I was in Australia and Australia. Uh, Two thousand and nine, I was I was the go to person on ABC radio for work based stuff. So I was on, you know, I was literally on the radio every week. I did live radio you know, on the BBC from oh, for, for decades. I've done that. So and I've done front of camera stuff, interviews of various sorts. So I, I knew about it, and it's just like all of the things that I did: the writing, the talking at, at conferences, the the presenting all seem to come together in that in that media space. And, and I just basically try to help people get along and do things better than they were doing it currently and to help them in their career and to yeah. help them in their, their organization. Yeah,
0: you were a perfect fit uh, just by actually spending so much time in every single area, effectively. And this is like a hub that comes, like basically uh, connects everything. I was going to ask you, Nigel, like we talked a little bit off air and uh, writing. in. Like you obviously could improve massively as a writer, but to really be a great writer, it's super, super hard. Like some people get it, some people won't. Do you feel like it's the same case in presenting a radio where people who are maybe not great and maybe not naturally, you could train them. They could be pretty good. They're, they're not anxious, but they're never going to be as smooth as like some, some folks. Do you, do you feel that
1: yeah. kind of pattern? I do. I do. I, I think that there, is a, there are some people who have a kind of natural affinity with, with a particular medium. You know, some people adore radio and just, just light up the room when they walk into a radio studio or come alive on camera. And it always struck me, you know, I'd be in a studio and I'd be talking to the presenter, just be kind of, oh yeah, quite dreary, you know, nothing. And yeah. then they, they go, camera lights, action. And this person suddenly just <laughs> came alive. And it's like, wow, it's, it's in 3D now. This person is in 3D. So yes, some people have got a more natural bed, but everyone can learn to not just go round and then I think and 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 bore the hell out of everyone. You you, you, I can teach anyone to do that, and to be not afraid of the camera because what people do is they get so self-conscious that their words get tied up and they can't remember what they've got to say and and if they're reading reading, I always try and tell people don't you rely on auto cue because it just sounds like you're reading. Oh teleprompter. Yeah, a teleprompter. Yes, that's what we call it. You call it teleprompter. We call it auto cue. Yeah, the oh, teleprompter. Right. So if you can avoid it, if you can't, then it's not the end of the world. We can teach you how to use a teleprompter properly. But I think if you can learn to speak and think, and and it becomes it comes over more naturally. Like if I was reading mm, this yeah. off a teleprompter, I can guarantee, Sergey, it would not be it would not be the real human oh, I being. Just, I know there'd be this gap between us, which would be the <laughs> you know, The bit of glass that I'm reading
0: of. Well, you know, you know, the, the funny part is that I I've I've relatively recently, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a teleprompter for myself. I thought, well, you know, I have complex scripts for, for documentaries, I'm gonna try it. And yeah. before I filmed a lot of videos and podcasts, but obviously no scripts. And it was so hard. I was surprised. Like I got I got this wall, and I'm trying to be engaged in while I'm looking into the script exactly. it's super hard like I'm I feel it's like I'm, I'm a bit I'm so robotic and I'm, I'm trying I'm like I'm so robotic yeah it, it's, it's it's a lot harder than I thought
1: it is a lot harder than than, than you think and everyone thinks that it's a kind of crutch that oh, all I need is a teleprompter that's not true if, if you can't do it, without the teleprompter, then the teleprompter isn't really going to help you. So what I always say to people with a teleprompter is you've got to, if you can do it, like if, if, if you've got it on an iPad and then it's projected, get a red pencil and, and un- underline the breaks and the emphasis. And you've got to kind of super exaggerate so that that word and then pause. And then as I was saying, you've got to really bring it alive. And, and I find it, People find it very helpful if they just use the, a pencil of some sort and uh, and just annotate the okay. script because if once you once it's just seen it as reading flat script. You've, you it's dead oh, no. it's dead yeah. it's, 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 it's awful
0: it's impossible it is, yeah, and you, yeah. you
1: can see people who you see people on television who are reading <laughs> reading a teleprompter and they are awful it's just embarrassing you see their eyes moving and there's no life in them they're just reading and they're concentrating so hard on the reading they're not concentrating on presenting whereas if you take away the teleprompter you have to concentrate on presenting because you've got the camera in front of you and you've got to say stuff so that's why I encourage people, if it's possible, not right. to use one, but where, where the script is complicated and you've got to do links and stuff, it, it, it is more challenging, I agree with <laughs> you. Uh,
0: do, do, you feel like, do you feel like, Nigel, it's better to uh, maybe put some, well, obviously get familiar with the script, you know, do maybe a few takes before you actually film it, if, if if you can. But also, just maybe put a few bullet points. Like, not don't put word for word because that kills the whole everything really. Yeah. But like, just have some names, numbers that you will know you need to hit, and that way at least you're not relying on word for word. You're not being a, like a robot from, twenty twenty eight, some kind of sci fi movie, yeah. right?
1: That's what I do. That, uh, that's exactly what I do. That uh, if I need help, and obviously I can't remember, um, you know, a whole long script, I'll just put down the key points that will help me remember. So, you know, I try and divide it into parts so that if it's, mm-hmm. if it's a long script, into four or five parts, and I have one or two points in each of the parts, and then I just try and weave it and weave it together. And sometimes it comes out really well, sometimes not so well, but you can do it, you can do it again. But you're, you're, I find that, personally, I find that much easier to put some life into the script than if I'm reading something out. And when I read things out, as soon as my brain starts to kind of flourish, I then stop reading and then I can't, then I can't pick it up. Where, where, That's, where right. Is the That's right. So it's, it is, it's really hard. When you watch a newsreader, you know, I've, I've been in the studios watching newsreaders live and it is amazing when you see that script and you see the energy and the, it, the animation they put into it. And then you walk around in front of the camera and you have a look at that script and you try it and it's just, you, you just mangle it. And these, they do it perfectly. You know, the exact, exact emphasis. I find, I say to people who are struggling with telepromps watch the news, watch where they put the emphasis and how they put the emphasis, learn from that. And when people kind of tune in, it sounds totally natural. But if you, yeah. if, if you, if you look at it, it's not natural. It's a completely unnatural and you have to kind of put yourself in unnatural mode. And it's also true in front of in a right. camera, if you, if you, so if I talk to you, as I would, you know, in a room, if you film that, it comes over awfully. When You have to exaggerate in front of a camera. Hello, Sergey. it's very totally, good to see totally. you. You've got to push. It's like you've got, you've got to love that camera lens. You've got to really love, love, have a great relationship with that camera lens. It's got to be your favourite person. Then you begin to create enough animation so when you play it back, it looks normal. But right. people, people find that very hard to do. Very hard because they and and therefore they speak mm-hmm. normally and mm-hmm. when you play it back it looks awful, awful. Yeah, it is it's it's hard. It's like, like, all of this is hard, but it's important. It's, you know, it you've it is hard to do
0: it. Totally, and it is similar to uh, take it to do an in interview. Um, I, I remember, you know, like kind of like it's not natural to do an interview at all. Like it actually doesn't mimic the whole conversation at all. The pauses, the the uh, the tonality is not absolutely normal, and it seemed like it is. Then you try it, like, oh oh it is not you talk over people uh, you don't you, you don't know what to say it, it's pulled apart right away yeah it, it's, i, I it's, completely
1: it's, agree i agree with that i do a lot of interviewing you know I've, I've done on learning now tv which i present every month i've done about 300 interviews just on just in that medium i, I it's one of the things i really enjoy doing is interviewing people so i learn a lot from them but yes and, and interviewing if you've got your questions pre-prepared and you only ask the questions on your list, it sounds like, it's like, it sounds like we're in different countries. They're alone, they're alone in the same room. And if you don't prepare and you, you dry up or you, you've forgotten what they said last, it's difficult. So interviewing requires a special kind of skill. You're good at it, Sergei, but it's, it's not easy. And again, no. people take this for granted. They think, oh, anyone can interview, asking questions. <laughs> you want to try it. Totally it's you, really you know,
0: uh I mean I would say like one of the probably most fascinating interviewers that I found for myself is Craig Ferguson because yes. it, it it is like when I, I analyze them and I kind of I think that their relationship with interviews yes. changes when you actually look at it from a, a not a consumer perspective, but as a somebody who who does it. And what he does is like you listen to the interview as, as a listener, complete garbage. Like it's like com- complete nonsense. But that uh, that unbelievable ability to come up with questions and, and weave it around, which, which is 100% impromptu. I actually did research on that. I'm like, is it really impromptu or not? And like the, the massive terabytes of data he has to do all this insane um, things that, that are related. Th- like nobody does that. Like, like on a late night shows, those guys, I, I, I bet they won't be able to do it. There, there's some scripted, yeah. th- this stuff is completely unscripted. I, I don't know how- I
1: He's amazing. I, I used to... Funny you should mention him. I used to know him in Scotland. He was a stand-up comedian in Scotland. That's when he started. I, I saw him as a stand-up. And uh, and it, the way he's got to is incredible. I'd love to talk to him about how he... The stages he took in his life to get him where he is. But you're right. He's an absolutely superb presenter and interviewer. Absolutely superb. Because he's witty as well. And he's incredible. on point. He picks up things and he, he turns it around. And he gets really amazing things out of people that you, other others wouldn't wouldn't do he is, he's a great guy it's, it's a great it's guy so to cool. imitate it's so yeah, cool he see like when, cool.
0: when when you have like somebody like scarlett johansson she comes uh yeah. on she, she sits down and she totally like she's shocked she's like yeah. oh i thought i was witty and then when she meets craig she's like oh my god i'm like a complete outsider and she like starts stuttering like that is so fascinating to watch because like oh my god this guy is like so good <laughs>
1: He is good. He is good. I agree with you. And, and the fact that he's come from Glasgow to where, where New York is yeah, amazing. Amazing story. Absolutely. Right, amazing. Yeah. But, but, yeah no, no, no one's ever profiled. I'd love to profile. Someone should profile. Talk, oh, and yeah. Get his story. Definitely. Oh, my God. I, this, is, it, it, this is a job for you, Sergey.
0: I need to work on that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I'd love Seriously. to because there's just so much. Yeah. There's just so much he does. Mm-hmm. And like the segues, it, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I don't know if it yeah. could, could be mimicked, to be honest. Um, Nigel, mm-hmm. what makes a good presenter versus a great presenter. What's the difference?
1: I think uh, almost you captured it yourself that a good presenter is someone who uh, makes everyone feel comfortable, ma- managed to segue between different segments and does an incredibly professional job. And you know, at the end of it, people say, good job. A great presenter is someone who just adds that little something. They bring out things from people they're working with. Uh, they bring that out very, very strongly. They, they um, work on individuals and make those people feel really good about themselves or reveal more than they would do. And just, and just has a sort of magic, an ability to ask that incredible question, that incredible question. And right. that's really important, I think. You know, it's just how, how do you do that? And I, I don't know how you can, you can parcel that or put it, put, it in a, put it in a package and say anyone can do this. I don't think they can. You know, and it's, it takes courage as well. Sometimes asking the most difficult question is really, really hard.
0: So true. And I mean, I've, I've been helping um, a couple of clients with, um, with coming up with questions for the interviews, for podcast interviews. And what I found, yeah, you, like, yes, you could make the most contextual question ever based on the pre-interview meeting that we had, which I'm part of, like, what, what would you like to talk about? And then I would come up with questions. But to be honest, and at least what I found is it's impossible. Like it's impossible. To, you could do anything you can, but the best questions are always contextual,
1: and yes. you're never going to come up. Come, with them. come out of the moment. Come yeah. out of the moment. It's like you know, I, one of one of my first interviews I ever did. I interviewed Bill Gates. I had fifteen minutes oh. with Bill Gates, and, ju- and, and you know, he's, he's a difficult guy. You know, he just gives very little. He is a tough one. And I, yeah, and he's talking, and, and I suddenly popped in my head, and I said, "How do your how do your kids learn? How do you see?" And it was like a, a light switched on. He's up his face and he said, oh, my girls, oh, this is... And on we went. And the interview came alive. And, and I, everything else came out of the, the, the stuff that he was saying about his kids. So you know, you've got to work out what unlocks people. What and, it it's, and it's different. Totally. Yeah, it's really difficult. But sometimes it just... Well, for me anyway, it sometimes just pops in your head. And yeah, that's, the, that's the great moment. It's always off script. All the yeah. most of the time, because like, because
0: unscripted, those are boring questions that just don't make any sense. I mean, most of yeah. the time, it's like a cliche question, yeah. cliche answer, really. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. All true. Absolutely true. Um, now, just tell me about you. your. Tell
0: me, tell me about your books. Um, are you like what, what, like what, what, which areas are you focusing on? Uh, what, which areas you started with? Um, I mean, a lot of them are based on learning, but which areas you started with, yeah. and then how well, they progressed?
1: They've they. Uh, I did my doctorate recently, and one of the things I've focused on was I looked at the kind of journey through my books, and I hadn't quite realised that they are – it is a journey. They, they are different. Each one focuses on a different part of the world and, and, and the way that it opened up. But the, the book – if you want to summarise my books, I'm trying to make workplaces better, more human, more exciting, more uh, – a, a way of gaining new skills, new experience, new competences, and a way of, of having – having some fun as well. So the first one was very much kind of inward looking at in, inside learning and development saying, this is how you improve learning and development. The second one was half inside saying, why does leadership development suck mostly? Why, why is it ineffective? Why do we spend all this money for nothing? So I'm kind of outside looking in, but I'm inside trying to improve it. The last book was outside saying, okay, let's take this big view. What's going on in the workplace? And how can we make workplaces better? And then what role does learning play in making workplaces better? So I came up with this notion of uh, uh, strong learning cultures. And I also came up with the idea that there's something organizations learn and organizational learning is not guaranteed if lots of individuals learn. So there's something about the shift from individuals being really competent and highly skilled and organizations learning so this idea of an organizational brain and like in your brain your brain is not that you're smart not because your brain density but because of the connections in your brain your neurons are on their own nothing you know that's not that's not going to help you it's the connections and i'm trying to get over the message that in an organization it's the connections that matter so each individual in an organization is a neuron so what you want is as many connections from those neurons as possible. And the more connections, the smarter the organization. So I kind of think there is a, such a thing as organizational learning. And that is a great sweet spot, it's a place to be. where the organization is making everyone in the organization smarter and more able to communicate and ask for help and understand issues and challenges and all of that stuff. So it's a kind of dynamic process rather than I have an agenda to learn and I need to be competent. I think there's a big difference between those two. There's but a who disagree. To, no, I mean, I think I that I
0: Good. think that's fascinating to be honest. Because, like, what what I find insane is that our ability uh, ability of our brain to do these connections with things that are completely unrelated and do it with laser precision and do it with phenomenal speed automatically. You're working on a video, you're working on a book, and then those moments: shower, run, whatever those moments are. Yeah. Like boom something happens and your brain yeah. is able to connect these things yeah absolutely. No, not a chance you, you they would have been they would have been connected otherwise uh and and, exactly. and if that if that happens actually at scale at the organization that could be quite remarkable
1: i think it's the difference between organizations which are good and competent and great organizations which are exceptional and excel it's all about organizational learning i think right uh, yeah, I, 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 love, love,
0: I, I loved what you said about, um, I think you talked about the culture and you said, uh, organizational culture, the first one of the key things is trust. And I was like, yes. that's totally yes. true. Because because yes. people don't get the good amount of feedback, or they don't get feedback at all, or they, they don't have clear expectations, maybe don't know what they are, and they're scared. And when Absolutely they're scared, right. like, you know, it does work.
1: That's all true. If you don't trust, you don't share. If you don't trust, you'll never admit you make a mistake. If you don't trust, you'll never give anyone else the, the benefit of the doubt. So you live in this kind of suspicious cone. You're, you hide yourself away and you, you make sure that no one can get you. So it's all about coverage, covering up and uh, blaming other people and never admitting mistakes. It's a, it's a kind of toxic environment. But, but so many millions of people work in toxic environments. And it's not necessary. You can have high trust organizations for absolutely for sure.
0: I was going to ask you, I totally agree. I was going to ask you, Nachul, what do you do uh, in your opinion? What are the practices that would get you better as a presenter, radio host, as a news person? What, what are some of the things that you could do besides actually doing the, doing the, the actual work that could help you to be better? That maybe be you curious, tried at BBC.
1: Be be curious. You know that that you could If you're if you want to be better at interviewing, for example, when you have a conversation with someone, how much time do you spend listening, and how much time do you spend making smart ass points, smart aleck points? And, and therefore, if you're curious, you listen, you you understand, and you empathize. You get better at presenting, and you get better at interviewing. So I think it's it's the way you lead your life. You can lead your life as a kind of interviewer stroke presenter or you can lead your life as a someone who is being interviewed and 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 the one who is the subject of the presentation and you don't learn if you do the 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 latter you learn if you're the former so keep learning keep understanding that every time you do something you can do it better next time never pat yourself on the back and say that was just a hundred percent Make sure everything is 70% or 80% so you've got some, somewhere to aim for. But you just do it in your life. You know, every day, you can get better at presenting. a mindset. And if you, yeah, it's a mindset. You're absolutely right. It's a mindset.
0: Yep. Uh, Nigel, anything I haven't asked you that uh, you wish I did? Any maybe final messages to the audience uh, who's trying to get on TV or just be better at their YouTube game or their radio game? Any public-facing kind of um, media
1: creation role? I'll, I'll make two points and, and uh, to, to finish. The, the first one is that I think everyone should get a mentor. And so few people do because they think that no one will agree to mentor. Why would anyone mentor me? Just ask. you know The, the vast majority of people are glad to mentor. Not everyone, but the majority will do it. So get a mentor and have some good questions to ask that mentor. You don't, you don't go into a mentor and sit there and expect them to do the work. You do the work. And the second thing is be conscious of your journey remember from last week last month last year that you're actually improving you're getting better you're you're learning new things you're meeting new people you're you're a more employable person so kind of pat yourself on the back occasionally and see yourself on that journey and make sure you are on a journey and if you feel you're in a rut and you're not getting better go somewhere else now the world is your oyster at the moment just find the place that will help you move. So see your life as a journey of learning. And when that ceases, do something about it. Change, it, change things around. Don't, don't just get stuck.
0: Right. Don't, don't compare yourself to Greg Ferguson just yet. You need some time. Not yet. Yeah, no, you need some time.
1: time. But, but have that aspiration. Have that aspiration. And say, one day, you know, I'm going to be as witty and clever and as focused as Craig Ferguson. And you will be. If you give up now, if you say, Oh, I'll never be as good as Craig Ferguson, you never will be. So just you know, just aspire. Aspire is a great word. Always aspire.
0: Nigel, absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing, great, great, I mean amazing advice.